I am Marlon Jones, the Career Skills Architect, and this is View from the Big Chair Podcast, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. Joining us today on the podcast, View from the Big Chair, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss, is Patty Medina, Associate Director of Athletics at Hartford Community College. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. When and how did you develop your love for sports? Um, I grew up around a lot of uncles. And so at a very young age, um, I acquired a taste for competitiveness. And so it started with uh, sports and then it led into horseback riding. I was born in Mexico. So we did a lot of like, you know, old school ranch uh, country competitions. And so from there it led to soccer. And then I was introduced to basketball, and I just fell in love with basketball. So I've been a, a basketball aficionado since then. Basketball is my favorite sport to watch. <laughs> Walk our listeners through your professional journey. Ooh, um, so after high, I played basketball in high school. After high school, I went to college. Um, I was going to play my freshman year in college, and then with finances and tuition and whatnot, I decided to go back home and just attend San Diego State for academics. And when I came back to my hometown in San Diego, my former high school coach asked me if I would be interested in coaching the middle school team. And so at the time I was 18 and he's like, you know, we just need a team and someone that's going to keep the girls together and have them, ha- you know, have them enjoy themselves and have a great time. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the mentorship aspect of it, the sisterhood, the watching them grow and develop into young women and, and leaders. And so, um, yeah, I started at coaching at 18. I was there for six years. And then I had an opportunity to become a practice player and like scoreboard keeper for a junior college. And so I was a volunteer my first year at a junior college. And then the following year was offered an actual paid junior college assistant coach position. And then one thing led to another, you know, people just kept coming up to me and, you know, offering me an opportunity. And uh, after my sixth year of being an assistant coach at the junior college level, um, there was a coach, uh, Jason Pruitt, who, you know, was recruiting a lot of our junior college players. And so I had these junior college players who, Actually, I coached in middle school, and then they played for me in high school. And then coincidentally, they ended up playing at the junior college where I was at. So I had them all the way from seventh grade until their sophomore year in college. 
And so he recruited all three of them so that they could play their last two years in college together. And he would always joke and say, hey, whenever I leave this job, like I'm going to pass it over to you. You know, and a lot of times you hear that in coaching, you say, you hear someone saying, oh, when I retire or whatnot. And so it hadn't happened. And then uh, sure enough, he got the job at University of Antelope Valley. And uh, he called me and he was like, hey, I already told them that you want the job. You know, uh, just go in and introduce yourself. And so um, I went in, introduced myself. I took the job. I was the NAIA coach um, there for two years, which, as I had mentioned to you or as it was brought up, um, that's when I became the first Mexican-born, Mexico-born head coach at the collegiate level. And so um, since then, and I don't even think until net, even now, there's another Mexico-born head coach. And so, um, you know, I took that title to to heart and I felt like I re- had to represent a lot of a lot of people after me. And so I was there for two years and then I had the opportunity to start a women's basketball team from scratch. So Westcliff University was looking to start their women's basketball program. Yeah, the school where I was at was in in a, in a bind where they might have they might lose the accreditation, and so the AD came up to me and he said, "Hey, we're in a little bind right now. We might lose our accreditation. Like you might want to jump ship." And so he uh, he told me about Westcliff University and uh, put in a good word for me, and then Westcliff University, you know, hired me on. And uh, yeah, I was able to start that program from scratch three years ago. And then this year was their third year. I was only there one year um, just because there were changes in the athletic admin. Um, but yeah, this year they made it to the um, the uh, CalPAC finals and the NAIA regional tournaments and stuff like that. So yeah, so in a nutshell, that's my, my career path. What pressure <laughs> did knowing you were the only Mexican-born head coach bring? Oh, so much pressure. Um, I felt like, you know, especially in Mexico. In Mexico, there's not a lot of women in leadership positions, right? And so when this kind of got out, when they got out into the open, I had a lot of people from Mexico reaching out, asking to interview, um, asking to be on television and things like that. And so there was a lot of pressure for me to stay really grounded in my roots in the sense of like, you know, practicing my Spanish, knowing like the current events in Mexico, knowing that if I were to be asked something, like I knew how to respond to it, you know, the presidency was happening at the time and whatnot. And so I'm having to tell my mom, I'm like, Hey, you know, walk me through these things because I'm not, I haven't kept up with it. And so there's a lot of pressures personally, but then also a lot of pressures externally where, for example, we ran a basketball camp in Mexico. And at the time there was a lot of, um, you know, the drug war and whatnot. And a lot of that was going on. And so there was a lot of pressure for us to not attend or not to not host camps in Mexico because of what was going on in the communities. But, you know, we, we held our ground and we still ran the camp and we had a lot of praise because at the end of the day, we wanted to give these young men and women an outlet, you know, to be able to go and play basketball and not worry about what was going on on the outside of, you know, the gym. But, um, even to this day, you know, even being an associate athletic director and having been born in Mexico, like I take a lot of pride in that, you know, even um, there was an announcement that there's a, the first Mexico born female um, official for the NBA, you know, she officiated her first game 
in December with again, uh, with the Spurs. And so they there was an article going around, and I had posted it on my LinkedIn, but it just made it surfaced on Instagram recently. And um, she's the first Mexico-born um, NBA official. And so, you know, there's a lot of pressure when it comes to being the first of anything, you know, and like Kamala Harris is like, yeah, I'm the first, but I won't be the last. And so we kind of set the bar, but then at the same time, we are the ones that are opening the doors for everyone else. And so my thing is, yeah, my path might've been long and, and tough, but I want to make the path for the next person to be a, a little easier but still worthwhile, you know. What's the hardest part of being a head coach? You're ne- the hardest part would be that you're never going to um, satisfy everybody. Mm. You know, that's the hardest part. You're always going to have parents that wish that their kid would have had more playing time. You're always going to have players that, you know, even when you win, they're mad because they, you know, they're worried about how they play. Um, you're going to have athletic directors that think that they know how to coach or that they know, you know, how to run your program. Um, that's one thing. There was a quote that said, like, I've, I should have written it down, but it was something like, you know, as a coach, like you're always, you, you're never going to satisfy everybody. You know, it's always going to be, um, someone's always going to counter what you're saying, you know, and the main thing, I think for me is staying genuine in what you do and how you do it. Because at the end of the day, if it comes from a place of genuineness, then you can say, you know, and be honest to people like, Hey, you know, she didn't have a great game today, or this is what happened, you know, but at the end of the day, I think that's the hardest part about being a head coach is that people don't really know how hard it is until you're in those shoes. And then you have so many people telling you what to do. You know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, do you want to be a division one head coach? I'm like, no, (laughs) because now you're having to answer to boosters. You're having to answer to, you know, God forbid your title is uh, your pay is from a a school sponsor, a school donor. So then now you have to answer to them. You have to answer to like associate athletic directors. And then at the division one level, there's like 10 associate athletic directors, you know, so it's just um, for me, it's, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. But I think that for me is the hardest part. If anyone, you know, listens to a podcast and they're like, oh, I want to be a head coach. You just have to be ready to be able to take on um, everyone trying to tell you how to do your job, you know, and you just have to stay grounded and stay focused and knowing that you've earned your right to be there. You've earned your spot. And I think for me, I became a head coach at 30. You know, I became a head coach at 30. And my first head coaching job was at the NAI level. So um, it was a rude awakening because I didn't realize how much it goes into that, you know, and, but I think in retrospect, I was ready, you know, I was ready. I just didn't have the, the necessary resources to be successful, but I did what I could with what I had. So, yeah. When you are interviewing to hire a coach, what are the top three skill sets that you're looking for in a candidate? That's a great question. So I've gotten that question more now that I've become an associate AD than ever before. Um, I would say the main ones are pretty much generic, the recruiting, the fundraising, and then the um, longevity of wanting to be somewhere, right? So a lot of times, especially at the junior college level and the NAI level, you get coaches that just want to use their position as a stepping stone. 
you know, and I think being honest with in the hiring process, like, hey, you know, what's the ultimate goal? What am I trying to accomplish? I think being honest in that sense is one of the things that as athletic directors, we're looking, you know, like that way we know what we're what we're up against. So if we know that someone is trying to be established, trying to stay grounded, trying to stay rooted in an institution, then we know, okay, this is somebody that is going to be here for a long time. Um, but if it's someone that is honest and says, hey, you know, the JUCO level is really my stepping stone, then which we get that a lot at the junior college level, we get that a lot because to be honest, most coaching jobs at the junior college level are stipend jobs. So most of them have their, you know, jobs outside of coaching. But I think that fundraising, knowing how to fundraise, knowing how to um, have community outreach in a sense, I think fundraising community outreach go hand in hand because the more you can establish relationships outside the school and in the communities, the better chances you have of them investing into your program. And then obviously the first one is recruiting. You know, the most important part is recruiting. Can you recruit? Can you fill a team? Um, are you going to recruit high caliber students, not just athletes, but students? You know, a lot of coaches can recruit, but then you have these young men and women that come in and have a 1.6 GPA or 1.2 GPA. And it's like, okay, at the end of the day, like most of the time, those students are the ones that are trying to, are, it's like the last chance you in a sense, you know, because they couldn't go anywhere else with the, their grades and whatnot. So I think being able to recruit high caliber um, students, not just athletes, but students is one of the most important um, concepts of hiring a coach. Uh, Patty, what led you to transition from coaching to teaching sports administration to college students? Honestly, COVID, COVID, COVID like really just put everything into perspective for me, um, you know, because before COVID, I was, I had been coaching for, you know, 14, 15 years and then COVID hit and I realized like my job is at the disposition of a lot of people, you know, like my job is not, there's no real job security in coaching unless you're at a high level where you're getting three, four, five-year contracts. At any other institutions, most of the time they're at will position, right? So they can decide tomorrow if there's a new president that gets hired and she says, hey, I want this person to be the head coach. They don't think twice and they replace you. Or if a new athletic director comes in and he wants to clean house or she wants to clean house, you know, they don't think twice, they replace you. And so one of the things for me is that I found myself um, coaching, but then when COVID hit, I ended up spending a lot of time with my son. So I have a 13-year-old son and I spent a lot of time with my son and I realized how much of that time I was missing out with coaching. And so I started thinking and, I, and uh, I'm big on fasting when I'm going to make big decisions, so I'll fast. And uh, I started to fast and I was just like, okay, Lord, if it's meant for me to get out of coaching, you know, then, you know, present me with an opportunity that I can't resist. And so at the time, I was an assistant coach at Our Lady of Mount, um, Our Lady of the Lake in um, San Antonio, Texas. And I was uh, a sports management professor as well. And so I literally like started the fast. I remember I started the fast January 6th. On January 7th, I got a phone call from the FAR at Bowie State. 
And he was just like, hey, I saw on your LinkedIn that it was open, you were open to to work. And he was like, I have this opportunity for you. Um, it's not in coaching, but I think you'd love it. And so I was just like, okay, Lord, I hear you. You know, I hear you. And so sure enough, got on the phone with him, talked to him for like two hours. And then he was like, just fly out here. We'll interview you, you know, and we'll go from there. So I flew out and um, this was in, by then it was February. So I flew out in February. I interviewed, they offered me the job right then and there. And I signed like a makeshift contract because the position was a non-existent position. So they were creating this position in the sports management department for me. And um, so I fly back and I put in my two weeks. I said, hey, you know, <clears throat> I'm going to put in my two weeks because I got this job offer and I need to start relocating. And um, so I relocated and get here. I'm supposed to start March 10th. If you remember correctly, COVID hit March 6th. <laughs> so then uh, they, they call me and they're like, hey, um, we can't hire anyone full-time. Like everyone is at home. We can't hire anyone full-time. Um, so we'll let you know what happens, right? So I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to be stuck anywhere, I'm not going to be stuck in, in Maryland because I don't know anyone. I'm just going to fly back to California and then I'll spend my, you know, my COVID summer in California. So I flew back to California, <clears throat> kept calling them like, hey, what's up? You know, what's going to happen? Am I going to be hired on by August? They couldn't, obviously nobody at the time knew when was COVID going to be over. <clears throat> and so I said, okay, well, my word is my bond. I don't want to start looking for other opportunities unless you say that's my best, that's in my best interest. And so she said, yeah, you know what? Go ahead and start applying because we don't know when we can bring you on. And if, you know, worst case scenario, like if we can bring you on, I'll give you a call and I'll let you know. So I ended up applying to different jobs. And then that's when I ended up getting the opportunity to become the assistant athletic director at Our Lady of Mount Carmel here in Maryland. Because by then I had already relocated. So I'm like, I'm already out here. I might as well look for an opportunity here. But then that's when I started toying with the idea of becoming an um, assistant athletic director. So then I, I took the job at our Lady of Mount Carmel, and I was there for about a year and a half, and my ED there was super supportive. He was just like, Coach P, like you, you're meant for bigger, better things. Like you need to, you know, do do bigger, better things. And so then, sure enough, I had another friend that reached out and said, Hey, Hartford Community College in Maryland is looking for an associate athletic director. And so I was like, No, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. He says, You're never going to be ready. Like you have to. The worst case in that can happen. They say, no, they don't hire you. You might as well apply. So I applied one thing led to another. And um, I ended up starting here January 10th. And so in a couple of days, it'll be my, my 90 days. And I've been here about 90 days, but yeah, it's definitely a transition that I never thought to make. I, in my mind, I was going to be a coach for a long time, but like I said, uh, COVID really put things into perspective for me and work-life balance became something of importance in my life whereas before I was just like coach 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 you know and I'm like okay I need work-life balance and I think that was a rude awakening for a lot of people in COVID you know realizing that you can be at home that you can balance these things that your employers need to understand the importance of self-care and mental health and so um, yeah so that's kind of how that happened. Now you mentioned the FAR at Bowie State tell our listeners what an FAR is. 
So it's a faculty athletics representative, so it's usually somebody that is like the liaison between um, the academic departments on campus and the athletics. So if there's issues amongst um, compliance or eligibility and things like that, like that person is the liaison between both departments. Many young professionals only look at the NCAA Division I opportunities. Describe professional opportunities that are available within the NAIA and the National Junior College Athletics Association and why they should look at those opportunities to develop their careers. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like the junior college level, we know what we're up against because, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have full-time positions. So we know that a lot of times we kind of, you know, get what you pay for in a sense. And so we seek out a lot of younger coaches that are okay with a stipend position or that's trying to get, you know, their feet wet and trying to build their, their coaching resume. And so I think a lot of times, granted, said it's, it's great to think big and think D1, but a lot of times a head coaching position is a head coaching position, right? And I've seen coaches that went from being a high school head coach to a division one assistant, you know, and I've seen um, junior college head coaches become D1 assistants. You know, there's always that stepping stone because the title is the same. The title is the same. You end up having the same responsibilities at any level. The only thing that differs is the associations and the levels. So like, obviously at the NCAA level, you have to know the bylaws and regulations of the NCAA. At the NJCAA level, you have to learn those rules and bylaws. And then high school, you have other rules. So that's really the only difference across the board, but a head coach, assistant coach, director of operations, any of those, the responsibilities are very similar, but as you get to like even junior college, NAIA and NCAA, they're all similar because you have to do fundraising, you have to do recruiting, you have to do community outreach, you have to do compliance. So they're all very similar. And I think a lot of people um, get so stuck, even players like get so stuck. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna play division one. I'm gonna coach division one. And it's like, you can get so many opportunities by getting your feet wet at these lower level institutions and then going from there. Cause I mean, work ethic is work ethic, right? And if you can manage and be successful at a lower level with a lack of resources, when you get to a position where you have every resource possible, then we know you're going to be successful. That's a good point. Now tell our listeners about your nonprofit Hooper mentality and why you started it. So I started it because in my 16 years of coaching, I've had four players commit suicide. Oh my God. And yeah. And so for me as a coach, I really, I took it personal in a sense of, I could have done more. I could have been there for them. I could have maintained better communication. I could have reached out more. And it really got to the point where I was like guilt tripping myself because of what they, you know, what they did. And so it wasn't until my last, my last player um, who overdosed, I spoke to her mom and I was just like, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wasn't there for her. Like I had just seen her maybe like two, three weeks before, like I didn't see the signs. And she said to me, Patty, like, there's nothing you can do to bring her back. She was like, now we have to focus on what we can do to prevent this from happening again. 
And so then that, I think two weeks after that, I went to a Nike women's conference, coaching conference. And at the Nike women's coaching conference, there were mental health advisors for like team mental health therapists that work with teams. And they were talking about the resources that these student athletes have at the collegiate level. And so I'm sitting at the conference, I'm listening, and I'm telling one of my former players that was there with me, I said, hey, JP, imagine if we had these resources for these students, but at the middle school level or at the high school level when they need it the most because they're transitioning from middle school to high school and whatnot. And so then we went after the conference, we went out to eat, and we were like thinking of ideas, and we said, okay, athletics mentality or athletes mentality. And then we're like, players mentality and then we're like you know what hooper mentality so it kind of came into play and um we we bounced it off of of that and um we just grew we just decided right then and there like this is what we're going to do in these resources and so that's the main reason I started it but at the same time I was already running basketball camps through this other organization called Hope Leadership Foundation where we would run basketball camps and then within the camps, we would have Bible study. And so we would have Bible study. And it was just like, um, it was refreshing to see that, you know, because you don't see a lot of basketball camps where they have Bible study. So I was like, okay, well, what if we do that? But with Bible study, we also implement mental skills training, um, life skills training. So then we started implementing these things into our camps. And now you see it more often. When we were doing it, you wouldn't see basketball camps that would have breakout sessions for mental health and, and Bible study and whatnot. And so that's how we grew into the camp. So now uh, we've been around for two years and we've run camps in Mexico, California, Texas, out here in Maryland, um, Detroit. So we try to go and run camps in like the inner city communities. We run all our camps for free. Uh, we sell apparel to fund our camps. So like we sell hoodies and t-shirts and then all the proceeds from those sales go into paying for the camps and the travel and whatever resources we might need for the camp. So um, we just try to bring awareness, you know, mental health awareness to student athletes. And we feel like basketball is the means to getting them there. And then once we have their attention, it's like, oh, hey, let's talk about coping skills. Let's talk about triggers. Let's talk about suicidal tendencies and things like that. So it's been awesome to see it grow. Um, Obviously, with coaching, I wasn't able to invest as much time into it, but now I'm able to invest, you know, more time and, and continue to grow the foundation. That's excellent. It's definitely much needed. How important is it for the young professionals who want to work with those high school or junior college student athletes to understand these basic mental health concepts that you're talking about? Oh, it's very important because it, it's a different entity of athletes that we're coaching these days. You know, growing up, like if you went, growing, we joke about it all the time, but we, growing up, if you went up to your coach and you said, hey, coach, I need a mental health day, coach probably <laughs> would have pulled you from your jersey and said, you suck it up and go in there and practice or go in there and play. Now, if a student comes to the coach and they say, hey, I need a mental health day, and you don't acknowledge that, the coach could get fired. You know, I've, I've heard of coaches get fired because they didn't acknowledge a student's mental health, you know, and so I think it's important to really understand that and really be able to identify when someone is burnt out, when someone needs some kind of 
um, you know, preliminary workout, mental workout. And so a lot of times, you know, coaches preach, oh, this, the game is 80% mental and 20% physical. Okay, cool. But what are we doing to exercise that 80%? You know, what are we doing to grow mentally, mental fortitude, you know? And so um, I think it's very important to even just know the term, you know, know what it is, what a coping skill is, know what a trigger is, know what suicidal tendencies are, know what depression might look like and what are the side effects of, of if they're under antidepressants. You know, some of these students are taking antidepressants. And so it's like, what are the side effects of that? You know, um, and especially even with women, like if you coach women, like understanding menstrual cycles and, and what happens when women are in the menstrual cycle and the fluctuations of hormones and things like that, you know, whereas before, like I said, everybody used to just brush that under the rug and they'd say, you just show up and show out. And we don't care what you're dealing with. Coaches would say, I don't care what you're dealing with. You're going to show up and produce. And so now I think, you know, kudos to the young generations that advocate for themselves. Um, but it's going to be very important for coaches to be able to um, be well-versed when it comes to mental health and, um, you know, having to deal with that in athletics performance. What has been your biggest challenge or mistake and how did you overcome it? I think for me, the biggest mistake is taking things personal, you know, mm. like not realizing or not keeping in the forefront that at the end of the day, coaching is a business, right? And so a lot of times, like I took things personal, I had players like, backstab me you know and and go and make up lies about me and things like that and and on the flip side I had players that invited me and as bridesmaids to their wedding and so there was a lot of times that like the negative I took it very personal and I had to realize that a lot of times it's just part of the business you know and I think even now like I mentor I mentor some coaches that are going through transitions you know they got fired from a current position or they just it wasn't it wasn't working out and I think during my coaching time it was a very faux pas topic to talk about getting fired right it's like oh you don't talk about that you know you don't you try to find a way to like word it so they don't know that you got fired and it was like very it was a very like stigmatized topic and I think now it's more open like because because everyone at some point either was let go from a program or the head coach transferred and then all of a sudden your contract's not renewed. And so I think it's becoming, um, you know, people are becoming more self-aware. But again, I think for me, the hardest lesson I had to learn was to not take things personal. And, you know, and that's one of the four agreements in, in the book. One of the four agreements is don't take things personal. And that's something that like I learned the hard way where I wish I would have just kept it in mind. Like, Hey, it has nothing to do with me as a person. It has everything to do with the business side of it. What's been the biggest sacrifice that you've had to make in order to be successful? Um, I mean, as I mentioned, I'm a single mother, you know, and my son's 13 right now. And for me, the biggest sacrifice was missing out on a lot of, you know, I remember vividly like, and I haven't been able to watch the, um, there was this one clip about the last chance university about the East LA, the East LA coach. And in the clip, 
he was just like, I'm missing my son's birthday for you guys, you know, and he was like upset. And I haven't been able to watch that show because for me, it hits close to home. And like, I feel like I'm going to be just crying the whole show. But um, I remember vividly, we were in Arizona and I was, I was the assistant varsity coach at the time. And I was in the hotel and we were 0-3. We were 0-3 for the tournament. And so my mom calls me and she was like, oh my God, Patty, you won't believe it. Like Jelani took his first set. And I remember I was just like, oh, okay, that's so awesome. I was like, you know, trying to fake the funk and be like happy about it. I got off the phone the next day. I like cussed my players out. I was like, I missed my son's first set. We're out again, our butt kicked you guys don't care. You're so selfish, you know? And so for me, like that, that will, those were the biggest sacrifices, you know? And not only that, like, I know for a lot of women, um, w- one of the biggest sacrifices is having like a personal love life. Right. So, um, a lot of the coaches that you meet, I remember the first time I met coach Corey close from UCLA, I asked her, I said, Hey, how do you balance your like personal love life and, and, and coaching? And she said, she said blatantly, like, Patty, I'm single, have no prospects, and I've never been married, and I don't have any kids. She was like, do you think I did a good job balancing my, my love life and my work? And I, you know, and it was funny, but at the same time, I'm like, we realize, like, we become so career driven mm-hmm. that all that, that takes the back burner. And when, when it all falls down and, and everything finishes at the end of the day that's all you're going to have is your family you know and so I think that's one of the biggest sacrifices that especially women in in sports have to do is like you know being a mother being a wife um unless you have like a, a someone that's willing to be a stay-at-home mom or dad someone that's willing to be a stay-at-home mom or dad um or someone that's willing to relocate for an opportunity for you you know I was talking to this weekend was the women's final four and I had the pleasure of meeting Peggy, who's the um, special assistant to the head coach at Mississippi State. And she was saying that she had just, you know, recently got married and she had two young kids and how they had reloaded, you know, and I was asking her about her transition and she kept saying like, you know, I'm so grateful for my husband because he was willing to be uprooted and move somewhere, you know, because of the opportunities that I had. And a lot of men you know, are very prideful to where they would be like, no, I'm not moving. Like, that's, you know, I'm not doing that. And so for me, like I told her, I told her firsthand, I said, Hey, it's inspiring to hear that there's men out there that are willing to do that, you know, and women too, because I have friends that, you know, their partners have had to relocate, you know, because the, the coach got an opportunity and it's part of the business having to relocate, having to move wherever the opportunity comes. So I think one of the biggest sacrifices, especially for women in sports, is having that personal life balance, you know? Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to young Patty when she transitioned from coaching to administration? I, it's funny you asked me that because and I, when I was reading the, uh, the question, it's funny you asked me that because... <laughs> Because I joke, but I'm so serious when I say I wish I would have transferred transitioned into athletic director a long time ago, because it's just the longevity within the business, the job security within the business. I feel like I could have been established somewhere for a long time already, you know, whereas with coaching, like as I mentioned earlier, like 
there aren't any contracts unless you're at the division one level, you get contracts and contract extensions at all the other schools, it's an at will basis. And so I think had I told young Patty, like I know young Patty wanted to be a head coach at 30 when she accomplished that goal, I would have said, Hey, just give yourself three, four years and then go into the athletic admin. I think for me, that would have been um, something that I would have pursued at a younger age. And because I'm still as fulfilled, I'm, I still feel as purposeful and I still have that relationship with players and be, that mentorship aspect, you know, now instead of just the women's basketball team, now I have the men's basketball team in here. I have the women's lacrosse women's soccer you know they're hanging out in my office we're kind of doing a mentorship and so for me that's that's the thing that's the thing that made me fall in love with coaching was the mentorship and then the sisterhood aspect and had I known that being an athletic director I'd have that same feeling of you know that same fulfillment then I would have pursued that a lot sooner now it's overtime what book do you think aspiring sports administrators should read and why? Uh, do I have it in here? I just, I just, but I have it in Spanish. It's um, the seven effective, what is it? I haven't, I'm reading the title in Spanish right now, but I haven't seen now. I should have prepared for this. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, the seven habits of highly effective people. Okay. Yeah. So I have it in Spanish because as I mentioned to you, I do conferences and, and camps in Spanish and I'm supposed to host a leadership conference in Mexico this summer. So I'm trying to like build up my Spanish when in terms of leadership and, and stuff like that. So I've been reading it in Spanish. Okay. What app can you not live without and why? Um, for me, I, I would say audible. Okay. I, I'm a big, I'm a big podcast, audiobook person, um, audible. And then it would have to be my like iTunes music, anything that like, for me, when I drive, I drive a lot. So when I drive, those are the two that I probably couldn't live without. What social media sites should aspiring sports administrators follow? Definitely have a, a great LinkedIn profile. Um, LinkedIn profile and then an Instagram account. So I know that right now TikTok is popular and whatnot, but I think, and I feel like Facebook is phasing out, but Instagram seems to be the one that is taking in all the, all the attributes of all the other ones. So I think that one's going to have a, um, a longer lifespan than all these other apps. What motivational movie do you suggest aspiring coaches and sport administrators watch. Uh, Million Dollar Baby is one of my one of my favorites, and I think it's more so because of like the mental fortitude and the grit aspect of it, not really like the administrative side of it, but just the mental fortitude of her. Like, I feel like that right now because I'm transitioning into a new career path, so it's like I'm learning something new. Because you know how she decided to become a boxer like later in age. And she had to learn everything all over again and train her body to, you know, become um, a boxer. So that was one of the things for me that like really resonated. And I feel like it, that can be transitioned into any life transition, like whether you're going from being a coach to an athletic director or being an assistant coach to a head coach, like that transition, it requires you learning new skills 
developing a new mentality and having grit. What is your go-to inspirational quote? Um, Nipsey Hussle is, is, my favorite quote is, the highest human act is to inspire. And so that's, that's my go-to quote. Like I have it on jackets. I have it like all over. (laughs) But yeah, that's my go-to quote. Thank you so much, Coach Patty, for joining us. And now, Assistant Athletic Director Patty. We appreciate the information you have shared with our listeners. It's very valuable. And we wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. This This is an honor. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.